Everybody and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to discuss, dissect, and demystify the confusing and always fascinating word of oncology and cancer treatment. My name's Michael Fernando, and I'm joined as always by my uh, opposite in so many ways, Joshua Hurwitz. How you doing, Josh? I am doing most fantastically. Thank you for asking. And I am very excited for this week's episode and the topic. Yes, the topic is is a special area of interest for for Josh. It's actually what he's going to be doing his fellowship on in part next year. So we're all very excited for him. A little plug there for you, Josh. Uh, yeah, th- thanks, Mikey. Um, that, that's like a spoiler alert. But yes, uh, I will be doing a fellowship in breast and prostate cancer in 2023. Yeah, and given that we've already done prostate cancer, the uh, the more regular of our listeners will be able to ensure that this week's his, uh, topic is breast cancer. But <laughs> breast cancer, I guess, is... Um, today we're going to be looking at a very small part of breast cancer or not a small part, but a significant part, but breast cancer is such a huge topic, Josh, um, that there is just, it's very, very, there is absolutely no way that we could do it any form of justice, justice or anything closely resembling to justice with one podcast, unless that podcast was to go for like five hours. And even then it would literally be on hormone receptor positive breast cancer and there'd be 40 other different subtypes and look it's a course in itself let's be really honest and breast cancer is again one of those cancers with so many treatment options and so many subtypes and specialties that to be able to be a master of it takes many years yeah i mean there's a reason that um there are uh, several oncologists that i know of that literally only do breast cancer and yet they never are short on patients or people seeking their advice so very true. Yeah. And I guess the the reason for this, and this is a, this is a how's that for a segue into my uh, little blurb there. Um, the reason for this is that breast cancer, as a- anyone who's ever watched the news or been to a fun run or, um, uh, or any such event knows, is, is the most frequently diagnosed and second highest cause of death in women worldwide. Um, and according to... Um, the one study that I was reading the other day, um, 90%, up to 90% of patients are diagnosed with uh, early stage disease, which I thought was um, was quite high, Josh. Michael's fun facts for the day. Yeah, it's really interesting that 90% are early stage disease. Here, here's a question for you. Uh, why is it that most women with breast cancer are diagnosed early? Well, I guess it's... Um, it's probably comes down to number one, the awareness of it. Like I'm sure that uh, most people will know of a family member or a friend uh, or, or some, someone that they know of who has had breast cancer. Um, the other thing as well is that um, it is one of those cancers that unlike say lung cancer or particularly something like pancreatic cancer, which can lie indolent um, and it's probably a consequence of its um its uh, status in the public uh, imagination is that breast cancer is is due to you know screening programs, uh, access to ultrasounds and mammograms, breast screen, as well as the importance placed uh, uh, amongst women with uh, from a very early age on self examination, that sort of thing. It is the sort of thing that can be and very frequently is 
caught early. Yeah, you're 100% right. The the screening programs that have been enacted in the last, I guess, 30 years, we could probably say, have saved millions of lives. And it really comes down to the old saying that if you catch this stuff early, it is very curable. If you don't, then it's a different story. But the screening programs and self-detection and the fun runs and in Australia, the McGrath Foundation is one of those really big fundraisers uh, or anything pink, right? Anything pink is going to probably represent at least some form of breast cancer sort of awareness. It's a fantastic public health initiative that has shown massive improvements. And these days we no longer see well, we rarely see fungating masses and breasts and those sorts of things because we catch them so early. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the other thing as well, just purely from an anatomical point of view, is that it, it is practical and easy to um, to sort of self-detect and self-examine. I mean, there's no way to self-detect or self-examine for a, a lung cancer or a pancreas cancer outside of a CT scanner, which, which um, uh, carries its own problems. Yeah, exactly. And speaking to many, many of my patients, the ones that do get mammograms and ultrasounds, I think it is important to acknowledge that these are not comfortable tests. And we all hope that in the coming years, there will be better detection methods that won't include, you know, significant, really, it's it's mild trauma, um, and a fair bit of pain to having to do usually every year or every second year, depending on where you are in your life and risk factors, etc. Yeah, of course. And I guess it's also it's also worth acknowledging the elephant in the room that we are we are two men, and so a lot of the things that we say will be will be uh, particularly like things like how obviously uncomfortable uh, screening um, tests are. These are secondhand accounts, but um, we we will aim to capture the uh, the uh, plight, I guess, uh, of the early breast cancer patient. Very true. Hmm. So. Um, I guess the the flip side of this, and, and and this is something that I guess we could only really say um, in the oncology space for uh, testicular cancer. It's the only um, only other cancer I can think of that that carries this particular um, uh, recognition. Is that and and this is a line that I say to my patients all the time: is that the majority of women with early breast cancer are cured, which again comes down to all of the research, screening programs, catching it early. Um, it's it's a fantastic sort of achievement, but you know when when people are understand women are understandably anxious about being diagnosed with breast cancer. I find that that's a, an important um, uh, fact to to mention and impress on them is that this is this is not the death sentence that uh, that it once was, and many other types of cancer are. Yeah, that's really true. But maybe it's also a lot of the the women who are diagnosed early also are motivated and seek treatment and have good engagement with their healthcare professionals, especially their general practitioners. And this leads to these, there's one, well, it's a wonderful outcome. Getting cancer of any type is terrible, but being cured of it and being able to spread the word and educate is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we'll be talking today, as I said, we'll, um, we'll be um, breaking this subject down into into I, I don't even know how many, probably at least six, I would think, um, topics, Josh, or six episodes um, spread over the course of a certain period of time. At least six. There's going. There's going to be. It depends how how long we are gas bag for. But yeah. 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 So so between six and a hundred, I think. Um, and to, <laughs> today we'll be talking about um, the most common type of early breast cancer, which is hormone receptor 
um, positive. So very, very briefly, there are three broad um, uh, broad uh, subtypes of breast cancer, and this is really what determines the majority of our treatment. There's hormone receptor or estrogen and uh, progesterone positive uh, receptor positive breast cancer. Uh, there's HER2 positive breast cancer, which obviously has a uh, it has its own sort of garden bed of research. And then there's triple negative breast cancer where none of those three markers are positive. And we can get into the subtleties of of what constitutes, you know, HER2 positivity and all of that in, in later episodes. But this, um, this week we're going to be focusing purely on early ERPR because Americans have uh, a, a vendetta against the letter O, um, positive uh, breast cancer. That's right. Uh, do you have a bit of a case for us uh, to start the to start the conversation, Michael? Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, a a case that I think will be relevant to both of our um, uh, both of our studies that we're talking about today, Josh. Um, and it's the it's it's the case, sort of case that I guess sticks in many people's memories when they deal with breast cancer a lot, which is the case of the young breast cancer patient. So, uh, like we've been saying, uh, uh, a woman in her 30s, we'll call her 38, she's premenopausal, which, um, as Josh will illuminate, um, has uh, significant in- impacts on on uh, on uh, treatment, uh, has um, completed her family, but ha- presents with a self-detected lump in her right breast, and she's also got a lump uh, that is suspicious in her axilla. Um, she is... Uh, undergoes a biopsy and um, is found to have uh, um, ERPR positive HER2 negative breast cancer with a number of high risk features, which we'll um, sort of litter our um, episode today with. And um, she comes to, uh, you know, the surgeons first, she has an operation, she's found to have a very high risk cancer um, in terms of a high grade, high uh, mitotic replication index, uh, high risk features such as uh, lymphovascular invasion, so invasion sort of out into the um, associated vasculature um, with positive lymph nodes. Uh, we'll say she has three. Okay, three. Yeah, that's good to know. And I also I think the fact you've said 38 is also a bit, it's going to be a bit challenging, but it's good for our discussion points because age is very important. Although this isn't part of the conversation, I might ask, has did this lady end up getting chemotherapy as part well, of the adjuvant treatment? Yes, no, absolutely, she did, and and that was going to be sort of the the chemotherapy proportion of this of this topic, I guess, is fairly set in stone, and there's only there's only a little bit of nuance, which is why we aren't focusing on it. Um, but she had chemotherapy uh, with um, f- uh, four cycles of dose dense AC, which is doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, and then twelve weeks of paclitaxel. Um, so a marathon chemo run and i do describe it to my patients as running a marathon because it's it's very much uh you know an endurance race and a test of their endurance um in terms of chemotherapy just to go off topic very briefly had she been slightly lower risk or you know had a had a low risk cancer but was very keen on the idea of chemotherapy the an alternative is um docetaxel cyclophosphamide or tc which is uh you know four cycles every three weeks as opposed to uh, what is it, about six months of treatment in total? Yeah, it's, it's five or six months, I think. And that's if you have no delays and you manage to get through it all in a timely manner. Which 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 is, is very much something that doesn't happen all the time. Um, 
but uh, certainly for a patient like this who is young, so you've got a lot of time that you want to um, that you want to, I guess, quote unquote, make up in that you don't want her to to um, recur and die young. Um, so she has a lot to gain from aggressive treatment, um, lots of high risk features and positive lymph nodes. Um, you would hit her pretty hard. You'd give her um, ACT, provided, of course, she consented. And so she's completed her chemo. She's come through it pretty well. Um, she's let's sprinkle in. She's she might have had a bit of radiotherapy after a surgery as well. Um, and uh, she comes to you for discussion of the next step, which uh, Josh is, I think, is where where he's going to talk about soft and text. I will talk about soft and text. Try and try and demystify it as well, because it's a very confusing um, set of uh, set of studies. Yeah, you know, for, this is one of those trials when we were talking about what to present and I was like, I'll do soft and text. I'm like, I remember this trial. It's pages long and there are so many variables in this and the conclusion is a difficult one. Um, correct me if maybe you've come to a great easy conclusion on how to manage this, but I, for one, having reread it and gone through it and done a fair bit of breast cancer, I still find it difficult to create what is best for the patient, risk factor averse and, you know, potential future risks of us, especially in a 38 year old, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very much like that. It's very much, it's something that's thrown around, Josh. I'm sure you found this, you know, oh, according to soft or according to text. And, and yet a lot of people seem to have different takeaways from it. Well, that's the problem because there were so many things looked at in this trial. You can honestly take away and, and advocate for whatever you believe in, but I think unless you're following up this 38-year-old lady for the next 30 years and able to adequately manage the potential complications, it's a, it's a, it's really an open disclosure and discussion with what the patient wants and what they're willing to tolerate. So a little bit of a context. Michael's already done a wonderful thing of introducing it, but realistically, patients who are less than the age of th- less than 35 years of age, who are hormone receptor positive and retaining estrogen production are at a higher risk of recurrence than those who are over the age of 35. That's the blanket, right? Um, Someone who's 36, still probably high risk, but, you know, that's kind of the, the line in the sand that we draw, but that that varies. So, Sorry, Josh, is, was there a reason they, they sort of, I guess, came to 35? And, and is it a bit of a, you might not be able to ask, answer this, but is it sort of a bit of a continuum? Like, does your does your risk sort of continuously drop after 35? Or is how, how do they come to that? Honestly, have no idea. Um, that's a good way to way to answer the podcast. But I, I assume assumptions. Assumptions are bad. But I assume that it's to do with the fact that the older you get, the least less, less hormones that you produce, and therefore the less risk. And maybe there's evidence to back it. But I think you know someone who's 38 who's still premenopausal, then you could really justify that conversation and say you are still high risk, in my opinion because of A, B, and C, um, but did not answer your question particularly well. But I think if you just remember 35, it's a good cutoff to kind of be like anyone, I would say within five years of either either direction, you can essentially say you're potentially high risk. Let's really talk about this in further detail. I kind of cheated, I have to admit. This trial has been around for a while and there are quite a few updates. So this is for the one the New England Journal of Medicine from 2018, which is really the eight and nine year update. So imagine this, this trial started to recruit, I think it was 2003, and it is still exceptionally relevant. And it is a fantastic trial because they've done so much. The overall impression from the five year update, 
it's like you know those movies where you see the end of the movie in the first three set three like minutes this is what it's like so yeah. in the in the in the in the suppression and the suppression of ovarian function trial so that's the soft part soft and the tamoxifen and exemestane trial which is the text component i will refer to these as soft and text the five-year occurrence rate of breast cancer was lower in the premenopausal cohort of breast cancer patients who received an AI, so aromatase inhibitor exemestane, plus ovarian suppression, so putting your ovaries to sleep and not producing estrogen, than those that received tamoxifen and ovarian suppression alone, right? So ovarian suppression added to tamoxifen did not significantly lower occurrence rates than those with tamoxifen alone, all right? So that's kind of the, 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 the history of it. Now, looking a little bit at the background and why they did this trial. So adjuvant treatment with tamoxifen for five years reduces recurrence rates of premenopausal estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, right? They know that up to 15 years and potentially longer. Our extending duration of tamoxifen for 10 years improves outcomes. Um, but the question that they had is that the effect on ovarian suppression has been less certain, right? They, they weren't sure at this point, and that's why they've kind of done this trial. So it was 2003, the soft and text trials were kind of thought. They were premenopausal women, hormone receptor positive. You know, the question soft had was to determine the value of ovarian suppression to tamoxifen and determine the role of exemestane plus ovarian suppression. The text was determining the value of exemestane compared to tamoxifen in women treated with ovarian suppression. So similar, similar, but different, right? Um, I've already spoken about the five-year update, so I'll just skip over that. Um, so the methodology, they were premenopausal, they were operable breast cancers, they had at least a hormone receptor, so ERPR positive percentage of 10%, so that's something important. And chemotherapy was optional, but this is important because when you look at your conclusion, and again, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, people who had chemotherapy had a higher risk of recurrence. And therefore the question in that cohort of patients was A, should you give the exemestane and ovarian suppression versus not? But then again, they're also a higher risk in themselves, right? So it's a bit of a bit of a mind mind twister, I feel. Um you've, so got, to stop, soft... you've, you've got to stop spoiling this the study, Josh, before you get into I, the I, meat of it. All of our listeners uh, listeners will switch off. I know that's okay, guys. You it's already been eighteen minutes, so let's let's be honest. You probably have no kidding. So soft text, so soft trial, three thousand pa patients, approximately randomized one to one to one. So either tamoxifen, tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression, or exemestane plus ovarian suppression. They're the three arms. It's difficult. You will probably have maybe you have to look at the trial, but I had to read this a couple of times when I first looked at it. Then you've got the uh, text trial, so about two and a half thousand. In this one, it was randomized one-to-one -to, -one to re receive exemestane plus ovarian suppression or tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression. The endpoints? Michael, what do you think the endpoints were? Let's let's make this interactive. Interactive. God, that's a, um, a word that uh, causes anyone listening to a lecture to sit up in dread. Um, I, I would say the um, uh, endpoints would be um, invasive disease-free recurrence looking at yeah, sort of much. recurrence rates because as as we'll see with with a lot of studies in this area overall survival they probably have overall survival data now because it's been going on for so long but it does take many many years in these patients to get a, enough events for overall survival to actually be mature yeah exactly so primary endpoint was disease-free survival so what that means is recurrence local regional or distant 
uh, non-breast invasive cancers, that sort of stuff. Secondary endpoints was inter the, the endpoint was interval without breast cancer, right? So time from randomization to recurrence. So slightly different and slightly different endpoint, but it's important to note. The median age was in their forties. There was probably not a huge percentage of people below the age of thirty-five. Maybe in the chemotherapy arm in the soft text was about twenty percent, and in the text arm was about eleven percent. Right? Most people kind of sat in that forty to forty-nine age bracket. Uh, most, there was a variety of people that had lymph node positive and lymph node negative, as expected when you divide it by chemotherapy, those that were lymph node positive received chemotherapy. Those that were lymph node negative were more likely not to receive chemotherapy, but there are a lot of nuances to do a size of tumor, as Michael said, LVI, all that sort of stuff. Um, they also looked at HER2 status, which is another conversation on itself. So efficacy. Disease-free survival after eight years. This is this is the meat. So 83.2% in those in tamoxifen uh, plus ovarian suppression, right? So that was a hazard ratio of 0.76. It was 78.9% in those in tamoxifen alone and a whopping 85.9% in those in XMS stain plus ovarian suppression with a hazard ratio of 0.65. These were all statistically significant. When you look at recurrence, Okay, so they found that this was more likely in those that had received chemotherapy, and I briefly mentioned that before. So the eight-year disease-free survival um, was 71.4% in the tamoxifen arm, 76.7% in the tamoxifen and ovarian suppression, and 80% among those with XMS stain plus ovarian suppression. So, Michael, like you were going to say something? Well, I was just going to ask, Josh, so, so you've mentioned it a couple of times, this um, uh, phenomenon of... Um, patients who receive chemotherapy being at higher risk is that th- that's not linked to the chemotherapy though that's that's sort of an artifact of chemotherapy being a surrogate for patients just having higher risk disease is that oh, absolutely absolutely so yeah so what this means is that when people get stratified and presented at mdts is patients at a higher risk of recurrence in the context of surgery they are going to receive chemotherapy to reduce that risk those that are low risk are less likely to have to go on to chemotherapy because it's a risk-benefit analysis. And there's lots of, um, oh, what's it called? It's been a while, but the uh, the UK, UK Predict is one of those really great tools that you can actually look at the benefit of having chemotherapy in a breast cancer perspective. And I'm pretty sure it's not all breast cancers, but it's a subtype. And you can actually look and see if I give my give this patient adjuvant chemotherapy, what is the chance that I'm actually going to reduce the risk of my cancer coming back? Because that's what you want. Everything else is irrelevant. Well, you don't want toxicities, but everything else is irrelevant. You want to live longer, especially if you're in your 40s. You might have kids, you might have a full work life, you might be traveling the world. You don't want to be seeing an oncologist every six months or whatever the rest of your life is. You want to be cured and go about your day. That's what I mean by when they're higher risk. And this is why it becomes a little bit complicated when how are you going to suppress or how are you going to actually treat these people? You then move on to the recurrence, right? So recurrence of breast cancer with a distant site was reported in 300 patients in the 3,000 or about 10% in the soft trial. Adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen didn't result in a significantly lower rate of distant recurrence than those with tamoxifen alone, right? So it was not statistically significant, although it was trending towards benefit, right? Then the rate of distance recurrences was low along patients assigned to receive XMS stain plus ovarian suppression among those 
who then tamoxifen alone. So important to note in this arm, it was the two intervention arms against really the control arm, which was tamoxifen alone. But the hazard ratio for XMS stain and ovarian suppression was 0.73. And that was statistically significant, right? So eight years of freedom from distant recurrence cohort was 80% in those in the tamoxifen, 82.1 in those in the tamoxifen plus OS. I'm going to say that for ovarian suppression. And then 84.5% in those assigned to receive XMS stain plus ovarian suppression. Michael has his hands up, although you guys can't see it. I would love to hear what you have to say. I guess the the main thing that I wanted to say is when you look at the numbers, they're quite small. So even though we're saying, hey, hazard ratio of 0.65, you know, it's a difference of uh, 4%. And, you know, 4% isn't nothing, of course, but it's not the huge, you know, sea change of, of, of treatment. Um which I guess is a is is a feature in many of these um, studies because we're we're already really good at treating early breast cancer, so we are sort of eking out the last few percentage points. But that obviously comes into the uh, the risk versus benefit. Um, it really it really calculation. Does. I, I think this is why a lot of the specialists. I'm not going to say a torn, but they all have a slightly different take on this trial because mm. of these numbers, right? So if you look at the overall survival at eight years in the tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression, it was 93.3%. Ridiculously, that is a fantastic outcome, right? And then if you look at the overall survival and those in XMS stain, it was only 92.1%, right? So slightly lower, but still fantastic. And these are both versus tamoxifen. And it becomes a little bit more complicated when you combine the two trials and you look at the outcomes, but that's sort of what, what we're, we're at right now. I'm going to skip a little bit about the the efficacy, but they're, they're all very efficacious, right? When you look at recurrence and you combine it, the eight-year freedom from distant recurrence was 91.8% in the XMS stain plus ovarian and 89.7% in those with tamoxifen, right? A difference of 2.1 percentage points. So, look, you know, it's not groundbreaking 2%, but to that 2%, it is groundbreaking. I think that's something that's really important. 2% becomes 100% for those people. Exactly. But then let's talk about adverse events. It's the dramatic pause. But in the adverse <laughs> events, Michael, what? what I, th- I, 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 thought, I thought you'd just... Um... I thought you just frozen there for a second. No, no, I just wanted to dramatically, like, engage people. There are, there are quite a few adverse events. Interesting enough, any adverse events in the tamoxifen arm, 95%. 98.7 in the tamoxifen and ovarian suppression, and then 98.7, so identical in the XMS same plus ovarian suppression. There's a lot of side effects, and some people you talk to will have these, some people will have none. It's unfortunate. I think at least 10 to 20% plus will have at least mild side effects, probably more. Um, and from just aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, things you think about body aches, muscle aches, vaginal dryness in the aromatase inhibitor arm, um, you know, risk of things like thrombosis, clots, PEs in the leg, sorry, PEs, DVTs in the leg. So looking at the actual numbers in thrombosis, so these are clots, 2.2% in the tamoxifen, 2.3% in tamoxifen and OS, ovarian suppression, and 1.2% in the XMS stain. Slightly lower, that's good, but also it's an aromatase inhibitor, so you'd probably expect that. In the musculoskeletal symptoms, which can be significantly debilitating, 6.7% in the tamoxifen. These are grade three or grade four adverse events, guys. These aren't grade one or two. 
5.7% in the combination of tamoxifen and OS, and then 114 in the exemestane and ovarian suppression. So if you've got a 35-year-old woman who, say she's a full-time pharmacist, she's got two kids, you know, she's running around, this could be a deal breaker, right? You know, you're like, sure, I can't, I can't live my life and I'm expected to be on this for five, potentially longer, because that's what this, this is, that's one of the questions they ask, how long? And then this is something I've seen and that I don't, I think we still need to do a lot more research in is the osteoporosis component. So 3.9% in the tamoxifen, which is a bit ironic considering it, promotes estrogen, um, but that's what they've said, 7.2% in the tamoxifen and ovarian suppression and 14.8% in the XMS stain and ovarian suppression. So you've got that 35-year-old pharmacist, sorry, Mark, you said 38, 38-year-old pharmacist, two kids, you know, busy. It becomes more difficult, I think. Michael, what do you think? I think that it is, I completely agree with pretty, with everything you've said, Josh, um, as usual. Um I'll stop the, it. I'll keep you around. <laughs> can definitely stay. Um, the, I think that a, lo- a lot of the things that um, we focus on the side effects of, of AI and tamoxifen, not without reason, but the um, ovarian suppression can cause significant issues too. I've had a number of women who say that the actual delivery, because um, it's it's a, a, a implant that's injected subcutaneously uh, every month, every four weeks. Um, and the implant itself can be quite painful. But effectively, because it's ovarian suppression, it's exactly exactly what it says on the tin. You're, you're putting these women, these women through menopause and you know we do it for a reason there's a there's a uh, a benefit in high risk patients and also you know we've said in this in, in with this patient that they've um, they say they've completed their family which which is an uh, critical question to ask but she has the right to change her mind and in in a year's time she might want additional children and the best way given that she's had chemotherapy which is um toxic to the ovaries um and is due to have sort of um the the maximal therapy which is an ai which requires sort of ovarian suppression postmenopausal state um the best way for her to potentially come back and have kids down the road and and Pregnancy in breast cancer is a, is, an, is yet another completely whole topic, and it's very very complex. But if very you want complex. to, but if you want to protect her ovaries, give her that chance, the opportunity to change her mind, then um, then um, you you do need to push her through menopause. But menopause, as as a lot of women will say, and again, coming from a man, and you know, a, a man who who um, is is much younger than the quote unquote menopausal age. Um, uh, a lot of women will tell you that menopause is awful as well. And so you do have these these side effects. But coming to the osteoporosis question, Josh, and again, we won't we won't go through this in, in depth, but subsequent to this, there has been this concept of adjuvant bisphosphonates for high-risk breast cancer. Um, and there's a there was a meta-analysis that showed that it had a benefit in in high-risk postmenopausal uh, women. And so pay, uh, I think we we do we do apply it to um, women who are on Zolidex, or if it had um, a bilateral oophorectomy, um, so uh, that that one will hopefully minimise the the risk of um, of osteoporotic events, but also has an anti cancer effect. So, in in very brief, it's um, three years of six monthly zoledronic acid, um, and it seems to work. But but I guess that's one thing that hopefully we will see less of is these young women with horrible osteoporosis. 
um, just because we're preventing it up front. I sorry, I did forget to mention that. So thank you for bringing it up. I I still think in this space we have to see what the fifteen year and twenty year outcomes are, which we don't have at the moment because. Adding to, yes, you can give the adjuvant bisphosphonate, yeah, it has benefits, but the question is, does it last long enough? If they end up getting osteoporosis early, we do have a number of really effective treatments for bone bone strength, but eventually they have to have treatment breaks. They might have minimal trauma fractures. There are risks involved and potential toxicities from those drugs as well. So... Yeah, they, they do to give it, and yes, there are benefits, but also I think there are still unanswered questions in this field. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair. And one last thing I wanted to talk about before I hand over, um, I, I am aware of the time. So there was also looking at efficacy. Um, and efficacy, they, they, they combined the soft and text protocol together. And what they found is that the ear disease survival rate was 86.6% among those with exemestane plus OS, 82.8% in those in tamoxifen plus OS. And that was a difference of 4%. And we were talking about this percentage. But in saying that, we do give people chemotherapy with lower overall survival benefits, right? But we had to take into account in this cohort of patients that they're young, they have hopefully a lot longer of their life to live. So they have potentially 40, 50, 60 years to go. And they probably live very active lives. That means we need to try and promote their quality of life whilst reducing their risk of having this cancer recur. But it is an interesting topic. And this was really, I think, the start of a big conversation about minimizing cancer occurrence in these, these females, but also looking at toxicities. But... I know you're all wanting Michael to uh, talk about his trial. So why don't we uh, switch over and then we can potentially have a bit of discussion of what we would do in this 38-year-old pharmacist with two kids. Yeah, I would love that you've um, you've uh, added added the two kids and the fact that she's a pharmacist, Josh. Um, so so the um, the the study I'm going to look at. So so we know in theory, what the optimal treatment for this patient would be. And that would be, um, you know, post-chemo, post-radio, um, a AI with ovarian function suppression. And obviously we're making the assumption that she's she's willing to go along with it. Um, but I guess the, the follow-up question is that she is very, very high risk. She has um, uh, three positive lymph nodes. She has a grade three tumor, a high key 67, which is a, a marker of, of cell turnover and replication. So a high percentage means, you know, that the cancer is, is replicating and dividing faster. Um, and even though we're looking at, um, you know, survival rates at eight years of, of in, in excess of 80%, um, there is still a risk of disease. And, and you know, as we say, this, these are young patients and we do try and eke every percentage point out. So in the metastatic setting, there is a class of drugs called CDK46 inhibitors. Um, and what they really are, and, and it's funny, I've had this metaphor told to me independently by two separate oncologists who have never met each other. But the way they are described is Batman and Robin in their combination with AI. So Batman is the AI, does all of the work, 
or the majority of the work. And the CDK46 is Robin. It's a little additive that aims to improve things, but really can't stand on its own. It's um, it's not Nightwing yet for all of you comic book fans out there. Um, there are a number of um, agents and they all end in Cyclib. Um, so Palbocyclib and Ribocyclib are the two most commonly used. But Monarchy is is uh, of a third one called Forgot about one. There we go. Abemocyclib, which I was just about to say, Josh, before you I just, I, just, I wanted to interrupt you, so... Uh, you you yeah. just couldn't help yourself. I could see your finger hovering over the mute button on your microphone. I was um, lost in your um, Batman analogy. I was just entranced. It was great. Fu- furiously Googling to find out what the hell I was talking about. Um, <laughs> but but um, so the, the rationale of this uh, uh, study, Monarch E, that's Monarch hyphen E, um, is that 20% of patients have um, have recurrence of disease even following curative treatment. And there's this uh, phenomenon in particularly hormone receptor positive breast cancer that these recurrences can be quite remote. And we're talking 10, 15 years plus. I think the, the, um, the, the oldest I've seen is a lady who had a cancer that was actually older than me. But she had a cancer that uh, was born, so, so to speak, in the mid '80s. Had it resected, and and I think had tamoxifen because back back in that day we we didn't have anything else, and presented with a recurrence uh, this year in 2022. So so we're looking at 30 35 years post, but it is a established phenomenon. Um, and so the Monarchy study was looking at adding. Abemocyclib, this um, oral CDK46 inhibitor, to standard um, uh, aromatase inhibitor therapy um, with or without ovarian suppression, depending on their menopausal status, um, and seeing if it could improve improve outcomes in women with early breast cancer when we know that the CDK46 AI combination, this Batman and Robin, has, has really significantly improved things in the metastatic hormone receptor positive space. Uh, so it was, uh, fortunately, there will be none of the um, the mental gymnastics and verbal gymnastics with this trial in terms of structure in contrast to soft and text because it was quite bog standard, uh, open label, randomized phase three trial. But it was a huge trial. It was um, international over five and a half thousand patients in over 600 sites in 38 countries, which is a lot of data to get. Josh has his hand up. I do, I do. Now, my question to this, just for the listeners, is it normal to have trials this size or is this probably one of the larger scale ones? Yeah, I I cannot honestly think of a trial off the top of my head. I'm sure there have been, but I can't think of an oncology trial that is more patients. Um, And and my second question for you is when we talk about the recurrence phenomenon, the distant recurrence of the 30 plus years, is it something people need to worry about so you know when you talk to a patient you're like look we're giving you the adjuvant therapy your risk of it coming back is really low should they be worried should they be like look i'm going to be that person that in 15 years time i'm going to get this cancer back that is that is a very good question and one that really doesn't have a right answer or it doesn't have a blanket right answer i think that um it is probably something that is important to mention, but at the same time, you know, you you do have to um, mention it in, I guess, an artful way. You, you shouldn't lie to a patient, obviously. You should never lie to a patient. So if they ask you point blank, 
you should say it. But at the same time, you don't want them to come to the conclusion, and, and I have had this happen to me, where a patient has said, oh, what's the point then? What's the point of anything you're, you're trying to give me? Um, I guess I guess that the, the way to phrase it or a way to phrase it would be that, you know, we are looking at a relatively low risk that is very much down the road. Um, but the highest risk, and it's a fact of life that when you have high-risk breast cancer, the highest risk is still in the first sort of two to three years after diagnosis and initial treatment. So it is, it's one of those things that it's impossible to to predict but it's not really a it, it's not really there's not really a right way to say it no but you you exactly that you said what i wanted to hear which is it's rare it's not a common thing these drugs still work really effectively and really do reduce that risk and convincing someone not to have the therapy significantly increases their risk of having that recurrence whether that's at five years or at 15 years yeah and i guess they're more likely to have it at two, three, four years, then 15 years. So, it, 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 I mean, the fact that the the factoid that I started the podcast with, which is that most women are cured with early breast cancer, remains true even with this rare but adequately described phenomenon of late recurrence. Michael's fun facts. <laughs> yes. So, um, a monarchy, um, a huge trial uh, with, I don't even know how many countries there are, but a significant proportion of countries on Earth uh, were involved. There you go. Um, and it was comparing standard adjuvant endocrine therapy with an AI of some description, plus or minus a bemocyclib. So it was open label, not blinded because they didn't give a, a matching placebo. Uh, and it enrolled, what I like about this trial is it enrolled exclusively high risk cancers or, or um, patients with high risk resected cancer. So the, the authors probably foresaw that if they included patients who had the whole gamut of cancers, so patients who had, uh, you know, less than uh, five millimeter cancers that were, that would only otherwise be treated surgically or node negative cancers, grade one to two cancers, that the magnitude of benefit with a bemocycline would be, would be really low if there was any magnitude of benefit found, because you're dealing with patients who are going to do exceptionally well regardless. So they, so they defined high risk as patients had four or more positive lymph nodes after a section or three plus positive lymph nodes in addition to one of the following. A tumor size of greater than 50 millimeters, grade three um, histology, a key, or a key 67 of greater than or equal to 20%. So all markers of high risk disease that carries a high risk of recurrence and these are all pretty they're scary numbers well not i don't know if scary is the right word but in when you're listening to histology of a breast cancer saying that's greater than five centimeters or ki67 of greater than 20 percent like these are these are something that you very much pay attention to absolutely so a, a tip for our for our um younger trainees who are listening is if you're going to your consultant and you've got all of the information to rattle off, you know, the decision that you'll be most likely making in this situation is, you know, um, at least in Australia is do I or do I not give this woman chemotherapy? And these are all the things that you need to look at the size, the grade, the key 67 presence of lymphovascular invasion, whether there are any nodes. So if you have that information ready, it'll help you and your consultant sort of come to a, a recommendation. 
Um, unsurprisingly for this cohort, pay, uh, previous chemotherapy and radiotherapy was allowed, not required, um, which I guess speaks to um, the institutional um, uh, variations in, in, in management of these sorts of um, cancers. And patients were allowed to have received up to 12 weeks of endocrine therapy before starting. Um, some of these patients did receive it sort of in the quote-unquote neoadjuvant setting. And we do see this sometimes in patients who have other medical um, problems like they're waiting for another more critical surgery um, and we just want to put them on something that is going to cause minimal toxicity, not interfere or worsen their existing medical comorbidities that are preventing them from going straight to surgery. But we also want to put something in that's going to at very least slow the breast cancer down. So um, we just pop them on endocrine therapy because, you know, it, it's generally much better tolerated than chemo which I think I can say without fear of contradiction. Um, so exclusion criteria um, were no negative breast cancer, metastatic disease, obviously, it's an early breast cancer trial, um, or patients who had received previous uh, endocrine therapy for cancer prevention, which I think is something that we see much less of these days, and also um, uh, patients with inflammatory breast cancer, which, and I know we're saying this a lot, but is, is, a, is a completely different kettle of fish and probably a whole other podcast, um, were also excluded. Endpoints um, similar to soft and text. Um, so the primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival, which is defined as the um, uh, time between the date of randomization to the first occurrence of disease recurrence or death from any cause. Um, the secondary endpoint was distant relapse-free survival, so um, the time between randomization or distant recurrence. Overall survival, which we still don't have, because again, we're dealing with patients who do very, very well. Um, by the sta- by our standards, safety and patient reported outcomes. Um, so uh, the median age of the patients in the study, 51, uh, 12.5% of patients were less than 40. So these are the patients that would have been included or, or um, uh, had a significant uh, survival benefit in the soft and text, the, most, the, the, the biggest survival benefit in soft and text trials. 60% of patients were eligible based on the basis of four nodes. So this is cancer that is not necessarily as aggressive as some other cancers, but has just potentially been allowed to progress longer and so therefore has spread more extensively. 95% of the patients had received both uh, radiotherapy and 95% of the patients had received chemotherapy. Um, over half had received adjuvant chemotherapy. Almost 40% had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is not the typical standard of care, but is sometimes used in patients who have um, really high risk disease or we um, uh, disease where we or very large disease, very large primaries that we want to try and downstage. So it is it is done. Um, and the most common chemotherapy, as was mentioned, sort of at the top, is an anthracycline past taxane. So this six month marathon of chemo. Um, 68.3% of patients were given AI as uh, first endocrine therapy. Um, generally speaking, I believe the um, patients who got tamoxifen were um, patients who had a contraindication to AI because, as we know from soft and text, um, tamoxifen is, uh, you know, only mildly improved by the presence of ovarian suppression and it's probably not what you want to give for, for these patients who are demonstrably high risk. 14% of patients coming back to soft and text as well um, had um, AI with ovarian function suppression. So um, that roughly equates to the patients, the 12% of patients who were less than 40. 
with a small percentage of patients who are um, between 40 and approximately 50. Yeah, so this this means that people are actually looking at the data and using it. So that's great. Yeah, no, it, it, it shows that, um, well, it, sh- it shows how influential soft and text has been in terms of changing um, uh, treatment modalities in patients um, who are uh, premenopausal. But I am keen to hear the results of this. Well, I, I think you're going to get a sense of deja vu here, Josh, because um, <laughs> it, it, the, the the overall flavor, I will say, of the results of uh, Monarchy is quite is quite similar to Soft and Text and quite similar to a lot of other trials in this space. So there was a statistically significant improvement in invasive um, DFS um, in the abemocyclib group versus um, endocrine therapy alone. The hazard ratio after... Um, two years was 0.75, so 25% risk reduction, with a p-value of 0.01. The two-year um, uh, invasive disease-free survival rates were 92.2% versus 88.7%. So this is the that 2 to 4% benefit range that we saw in soft and text. Um, the uh, improvement in uh, distant recurrence-free survival uh, was similar. The hazard ratio was 0.72, with the absolute numbers being at two years, 93.6% in the Abema group versus 90% in the ET alone group. So again, small numbers, but significant statistically and probably clinically if you've got a patient in front of you. Um, overall, overall survival data, we uh, have had only one update on Monarchy at this point, and I don't think we have... Um, uh, the uh, mature data yet. And again, similar to soft and text, this is probably not something that we're going to see um, for for many, many years. You're looking at needing, and um, any of our um, more statistics-minded listeners will probably um, uh, call me out on this, but I think you're looking at having sort of uh, close to 50% of um, uh, survival events before you can say that it is mature data. And if we're looking at a 90% um, disease-free survival rate um, at um, at two or three years, then it's going to be a very very slow trickle down to the point where overall survival data is mature. Um, Which is as nice. a public... it's a nice thing where there's a slow. Trickle. It's a nice it's a nice problem to have definitely, um, but it's it's not it, it's not something that we can probably wait for because by the time and this is the um, this is the conundrum with these sorts of data is we know that disease free survival is is not the iron classed outcome that it necessary is because we know that disease-free survival and in the metastatic setting, it's it's sister outcome, progression-free survival. You know, you can have enormous benefits in these two areas and then simultaneously no overall survival benefit. But we, we just won't know that. And by the time we do, it's entirely possible that something else has come, come along. I have a question. So you've got You've got some early data. It's all very promising. We've got the 38-year-old and you're like, oh, I could potentially do this, you know. Um, my question is this. So if you're in that small cohort of patients who then recur and you're looking at metastatic management and abemocyclib is one of those drugs that you use in the metastatic sphere as a first line, so CDK4-6 inhibitor, has there been data to look at rechallenging? Like, what's what's the sort of, you know, what's the word on the ground? For I, this? I 
I don't know that anyone knows. I don't know that anyone knows, particularly in Australia, because this is not currently an indication. So we, we don't have the body of practical knowledge. I guess um, now I could never quite confirm this looking through the data, but I believe that the um, CDK46 was given for two years because there was mention of a two-year treatment course. So I guess the question really is, did they progress on the CDK46 or call it sort of three to six months afterwards where, where you could convenient you you could conceivably call it the disease refractory or did they progress on the ai alone assuming that i'm right and they only went for two years um or did you progress after the ai because if you progressed after the ai um was stopped or on the ai you know there's evidence that changing an ai is, is like um letrozole and astrozole or exemestane to full vestrant on if you progress on the AI, there can be some benefit. You can add back the CDK46 because as far as we could tell, the CDK46 was keeping things at bay. The challenge though, and I suspect what you were sort of um, getting at, is what happens if the patient recurs on the CDK46 um, and AI combination. And my guess would be that you would be, I don't think there's any evidence to say that you could change to another CDK46 because the, the word on the ground or the thought on the ground is that all of these are pretty much the same. Um, so you'd be looking at chemotherapy, I would have thought. Yeah, so similar mechanisms between all the CDK46 inhibitors. And you're right, that's that's a good caveat to talk about. If you progress while on the CDK46, you can probably say mm, it's unlikely say, to work. You can say it's use. not working, definitely. Yeah, but if, if you progress afterwards, the question is, I think it'd still be interesting to see if you re-challenge with it, are you going to get a really good control? And you might. I think that's the thing. It'd be interesting to see if someone did a study looking at those that recurred after this. And then if you re-challenge, therefore, say, like, would you have the same, same, um, I guess, volume of benefit versus if you'd never been exposed in the first place? Yeah, and, and that is something that I guess we will know if this approach becomes more widely accepted just through sort of post-marketing research and and sort of, um, I guess, word on the street, as he said. And what about toxicities? I'd love to hear if they're better than my softened text or if they're worse. <laughs> well, I guess the, the um, most common side effect with abemocyclib is diarrhea. And this is something that I've been told, you know, by, um, by uh, physicians who have had more experience using abemocyclib because of the three in Australia, at least, it does seem to be the one that has got the least market share. Um, uh, palbocyclib and ribocyclib are, are, are much more commonly used. And I think up until recently, um, abemocyclib, uh, was only accessible through a, through an access program. I think it might have uh, made its way onto the PBS recently. Um, the so ninety seven or ninety eight percent of patients had an adverse event of any grade. The most common um, adverse event overall was diarrhea. Forty three percent of patients had a grade three um, uh, event, which was neutropenia, most commonly I should say, and two point five percent had a grade four adverse event, which again, most commonly was neutropenia. Others included fatigue, abdominal pain, nausea, anemia, arthralgia, and vomiting. But 
if you look at the CDK 46s as a, as a sort of family, each one has its own sort of quirk. So um, abemocycliv, I've been told, you know, that the thing that it causes more than more than its its sisters is diarrhea. Ribocycliv, for those who have used it, you'll know that the risk of um, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, long QT syndrome, is um, significant. Um, and palbocycliv doesn't really have a quirk, but one thing I have seen. Um, or heard of, I should say, is there is a risk of pulmonary toxicity with pulmonary fibrosis. So they each have their own sort of little um, little thing. Um, but th- that was sort of borne out, I guess, the, the diarrhea component was borne out in this study. Yeah, I think also with Pelbo, I find I like using it because I don't have to get an ECG beforehand. Um, and if you want to start someone on you know, ribocyclic, you have to do that. And I know it's not a huge thing, but it's also, it's just another step to add to what's already a very challenging situation for these patients. But I guess it always, it also comes back to, you know, patient selection as well. And there's been debate about, because, and, and this is very much getting off topic, but um, there was, there's been a, in the metastatic setting, a, a, uh, definite survival benefit with ribo that hasn't been seen with palbo or abema Um, but at the same time you'd be sort of playing with fire if you were giving it to a a woman who had had three heart attacks heart failure and was on uh amiodarone for an arrhythmia so it's patient selection yeah that's it and the other nice thing about ribo if we're talking about both sides of the coin is that you only need it for three weeks so the cycles are slightly different from memory you know, you take a week off. So for those that would prefer not to have drugs every day, this could be an option for them. Yeah, I, I, I think I did read that abema is actually continuous. So you don't have the um, you don't have the week off that you do with um, ribo and, and palbo. Palbo has a week. Um, so I guess conclusions, because we're very much getting off topic. Um, conclusions from Monarchy is um, we, we told you that this this is a huge area. It's very easy to get off track. Um, so there is a statistically significant benefit in um, invasive disease-free survival and distant uh, recurrence-free survival um, with the addition of abemocyclib to uh, endocrine therapy in high-risk disease. That's that's what the data say. It is statistically significant. It is uh, numerically small. Um, and the overall data is, uh, the overall survival data is immature. Um, so really, this comes down to the balance of benefit versus risk and you know josh you said this before it it really does turn into a discussion with your patient um i and and you know one of the the breast specialists um uh, where i work um professor belinda yeo she she always um makes a big point of it being a discussion with the patient because every patient will come at this from a slightly different angle um you know drawing on their own experiences opinions and what have you some will say you know i i have you know for our patient i have um two young kids i've got a high functioning job um i've got a lot of living that i want to do so anything that you can give me that gives me a chance at a better outcome um i will take and i will bear the burden of those decisions whereas others will say those side effects terrify me and you're telling me that the absolute benefit is potentially quite small i'm going to be a little bit more i guess for want of a better word moderate in my um you know my or or balanced in in my um approach to this and um say you know i'm not going to benefit i'm not going to um 
uh, risk the side effects of which you know you've you've lined out for me. So I don't think there's any right or wrong answer because because you are dealing with small benefits and um, potentially significant side effects because you know the risk of neutropenia is 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 significant as well. Um, I, I think it really comes down to what the patient in front of you wants to do and, and, and what they want to get out of their treatment. And as we get closer to uh, getting the, to the end and down the rabbit hole with Alice, um, I, I wanted to put that in. <laughs> but as we're, we're down the rabbit hole and we've t- spoken a lot about two really great trials, things that all essentially offer benefit. I think that's something we can say, Mikey, is that, mm. you know, my, my trial soft and text definite benefit using XMS stain and ovarian suppression. But again, there's risks in that young cohort and also in your trial as well, looking at, you know, the addition of a bemocycline in the adjuvant really mm. field, but also quite unanswered questions. That's a lot of oncology and Michael, you hit it on the head. It's what's best for the patient at their current stage in their life. And what would they be comfortable in managing? We can manage toxicities. We can manage whatever people need, but they everyone has a different requirement in life. Yeah, and everyone has a different mindset. And um, I don't think anywhere is that seen, particularly in the oncology field, I don't think anywhere that the different mindsets are seen more starkly than in the field of breast cancer, particularly yeah, and- breast cancer. Yeah, and you know what? Two percent, two percent to the individual might not mean anything, but two percent to someone like a thirty-eight-year-old with two kids might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, th- these are these are numbers. They're they're as uh, as cruel and 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 cold as as numbers can be, but they do mean different things to different people. One one thing, and I, I think we'll um, just uh, end on this note, um, uh, to sort of look into the future, is one thing I'm very interested to see with both soft and text and with. Um, with uh, the CDK46 inhibitors is its effect on this phenomenon of late recurrence. Are we going to see that these late recurrences persist and, you know, are these things that that always will happen regardless of what we do at this stage? Or are we going to see a significant decrease from, um, you know, more aggressive treatment? Because at the moment, you know, a lot of these patients would just be getting uh, tamoxifen. Um, many of them, you know, we might be just coming out of the era where people didn't get chemo for high-risk disease or got outdated um, chemotherapy regimens like um, CMF. Um, so, it will be interesting to see, and, and this is probably something that we'll, again, have to wait many, many years for, but will we be seeing an age where, where these late recurrences are much less of a factor? Great way to end. Thank you for putting that, putting that so eloquently. <laughs> well, I, th- I, I think it has been very much a rabbit hole, but thank you for, for take, coming on this journey with me, Josh. It's been great. It's been a great one, great one hour. Stay okay. tuned for the... Uh, millions more about breast cancer that I'm sure we can talk about. Uh, we, we could we could be talking about breast cancer until the cows come home, but uh, fear not for those of you who don't have a, a significant interest in it because there is plenty more content in other areas of oncology to come. All right, I think we'll, we'll hold that there. Thank you very much, Josh. Thanks and, again. Uh, see you next time. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye.